Hey now, welcome to another edition of the Inside BS Show. My name is Dave Lorenzo, and today we're talking about working up a complex case in the practice of law. Now, if you're not familiar with the practice of law, you may not know what working up a case means. So let me share with you what I'm talking about. If you are an attorney, particularly a plaintiff's attorney, especially if you do complex cases like personal injury cases or catastrophic cases, you have to spend a lot of time preparing the case before you ever do anything. It's not like you see on Law & Order. And today, my guest, Mike Cushing, is going to help us understand the, the process of making sure that someone actually has a case, going through the process of making sure that the case is presented in a way that is compelling, and then understanding the impact that work has, number one, on his client, number two, on the industry as a whole, because without people like Mike, the insurance industry would never be held accountable, and number three, how his work has to evolve as the law evolves. I can't wait for you to join me in this fantastic conversation with personal injury attorney from Chicago. Please join me in welcoming Mike Cushing to the inside. BS show. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate you being here today. Dave, thanks so much for asking me to be a part of this. I'm very excited to be here. All right. So, Mike, tell us first and foremost, how did you uh, how did you get into this? How did you decide to really to represent people who who have been uh, unfortunately a part of usually a a really serious catastrophic injury situation? And, you know, what went into that process? Because you you really you know, you put your your reputation and you put your livelihood on the line every time you take in take in a new client because you don't get paid unless the unless you help the person get a result. So what went into the decision process for you to to decide to select this area of law? So I chose this area of law really pretty early in life. Uh, I grew up around a lot of attorneys. My father and his brother uh, ran a PI firm in Chicago starting in the early 90s. Uh, They started working together. And so when I was in high school, I would watch them. I'd be at family parties, listening to them talk about their cases, uh, having my dad sit around the table at night, talk about things he was doing, actually taking days off of school and going and watch them actually try cases. Um, I could see the, the passion that they put into it and the satisfaction that they got from it. And for me, that was really just the, the only place I ever wanted to do it. You get to be in the courtroom fighting for people, fighting against big corporations. Um, there is the whole sort of a be on the side of the underdog thing that I really enjoy. Um, there's people that really need help, and this is the best way that I saw that I could help them. Now, it's really important for folks to understand that your your practice area is one where you guys you 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 are really invested in your clients. You don't get paid unless you help your client get a positive result. Explain explain that to people, and, and explain how it works from from your side of the of the table. And now it's time for another Sandrowski Business Minute. Today we have Sandrowski tax expert, Catherine Raker. So Catherine, how do we calculate home office expense? Well, there are two methods, the simplified method and the regular method. So as I mentioned earlier, the um, home office has to be a specific space designated just for that activity. So with the simplified method, you would take the square footage of that specific space and multiply it times $5. And note that the IRS only allows a maximum of 300 square feet when you're using the simplified method. Under the regular method, what you would do is determine a ratio of your designated space square footage to the entire home square footage. And you'd multiply that ratio times the specific expenses, such as utilities, such as property tax. And this is more complicated and time-consuming. An additional consideration would be depreciation expense could be allowed on your home office if you were using the the regular method. However, when you go to sell your home, you're going to have to take that depreciation expense into consideration and recapture it so that the gain that you would have on the sale of your home would increase because you'd previously taken a depreciation deduction. 
Wow, that was a great answer. And you know what I learned from that answer? I'm going to call you rather than try and figure this out myself. So if you want to do what I do and call Catherine Raker, you can call her at 866-717-1607, 866-717-1607. This has been your Sandrowski Business Minute. Sandrowski Corporate Advisors, they're a CPA firm with a different perspective. So basically, in this practice, you've got to be selective about what cases you take because everything is coming out of my pocket until there's a recovery. Um, and when I do decide to take on a case, I express to the client that we're in a partnership here. We're not getting anything, either one of us, until the end. And until that day comes, it's no exposure to them. There is no risks. Because people always ask me, like, well, what's in this for you? Well, I'm going to help you. And in the end, we're going to share in whatever recovery we get. So that puts an incentive on me, and they understand that the more money I can get, then the more compensation, the better it is for me, the better it is for them. Uh, so it is sort of that partnership approach that we take that allows the client to be a part of it, um, knows that we're both in this together, we're both taking a risk to some extent, um, and I think that puts a lot of my clients at ease knowing that they have no financial exposure if things happen to turn out poorly. Now, when you say you have to be selective in taking cases, give us give us your criteria. What do you what do you look for in a case to make sure that you're investing your time and your money? And we're going to talk about how to work up a case in a minute. But explain to us the criteria that that you that you have before you decide. Yes, I'm going to represent this person. All right. So. Uh, I don't believe that every, like, there's not one size fits all for an attorney, just as there's not one size fits all for a client. Uh, we're a general personal injury litigation firm. However, we do sort of focus on trucking, auto, and busing cases. Um, after doing this for nearly 19 years, you start to develop sort of an instinct as to what's, what's there when there's a there there and when there's not. Um, uh, there is as much of a vetting of the client by me as that client is vetting me on their path path because they want to be with someone that they can trust and that they like. And I want to work with a client that I trust and that I like. I don't want to have someone who comes in saying one thing and three weeks later, the story's changing this and that. So um, oftentimes we will sign up a client if there's a questionable call. And I, and I just did this the other day where I said, there's no guarantee this is a case at all. Uh, we'll take some steps. We'll do an initial investigation and then we'll make a decision from there. Um, but really, you do have to do vetting. You get people that come around that you can tell have the wrong intentions or looking for a quick dollar. Uh, you don't want those types of cases. Those end up being a headache, and it's not good for you, and it's not good for business. You want to make sure that your client is in it for the right reasons, um, that they truly uh, are going to work with you, um, put their trust in you, uh, so that you guys can work together amicably. You don't want to have a, a, an adversarial relationship with your client. You don't want a client that's going to try to take advantage of you, which you've seen before, you know, calling you at 9 o'clock at night on your cell phone, you know, all day on Saturday, sending you texts at off hours. Um, you want someone that's going to respect you and your space. You're going to work hard for them. Uh, you want them to respect that. So there's a lot of that going in. Am I a good fit for this client? And is this client the right fit for me? Okay, so let's talk about everything that goes into working up a case, right? And this is all, mm-hmm. again, this is all coming out of your pocket, coming out of your firm's uh, financial uh, wherewithal. Explain to folks what you need to do. You just told us that you signed this guy up or this person up, and you're not 100% sure whether, whether this is going to be a case that makes sense or not. Explain to folks all the work that you have to do, the preliminary work, and then after the case is filed, all the work that goes into that during the case, and then after the case, because sometimes you may get a judgment, and then you have to actually figure out how to collect on the judgment, right? So explain to folks that entire process, because we don't get... As, as lay people, as people who don't practice law, we don't get to see all that. Right. So so I'll, I'll use this one I just signed up today as a, as a pretty good example. Um, this is a, is a family from a very poor neighborhood who uh, the wife was away on a trip and came home and found her husband and passed away. There was a gas leak in the building and the police came to the scene and just said, this guy obviously committed suicide, Right. Uh, they took this to an attorney originally about six months ago who was a real estate attorney. He'd never done this before. He saw someone had passed away. He thought big money or an easy turnover. So all of a sudden, I get a phone call from them saying, we made a mistake. We need someone who actually knows what they're doing. So I sat down with him, met with him, 
And there is a police report and there's tons of witness statements, um, but they're very vague. Um, there, uh, there is a finding that this guy did pass away in his home uh, and that there was gas in the building. They ruled it a suicide. I don't know why that is. Um, but what we do know from just the preliminary investigation that we've started so far is I got a, pol- a private investigator to go out to the building to take statements from every person who lived there, every person on the police report to find out what the gas leak was, how long it had been going on, what the extent of it was, right? Uh, we're investigating the uh, landlord to see if this is something that had been going on and he repairs the building, permits that had been pulled, permits that were pulled after the event to see if he had to go in and try to fix anything. The original attorney never even went to the fire department and the fire department was on the scene for seven hours doing a complete investigation, had to shut down the whole building. And then there was a report put out for repairs that had to be done. This other guy never had that. The other thing that was interesting about this is it's the guys in a very poor neighborhood in Chicago where the landlord only runs the heat in the building during the hours he's permitted or is required to by law. This all happened in the middle of the day when he wasn't required to to run heat. And um, I don't know if everybody knows this, but it is not uncommon for people when heat is turned off to use their ovens as heaters for the for the property. So when I talk to people about this, like, oh, my gosh, who would do that? I go, lots of people. When you don't have heat, and this was Chicago in December, it was 10 degrees outside. He was cold. So he puts on the gas. He puts on the stove. He was also sick at the time. So he was taking the day off from work. He had taken medication to take a nap. We we know we can probably rule out suicide. There is no note, no history of this, nothing. Um, And now the bottom line is getting to uh, figure out how what exactly went down uh, and, and take it from there. But there's a Man. whole lot of stuff there that we're just researching now just to figure out what happened. And, you know, we're only a couple of days into this and we found out a lot. So uh, there's a couple of lessons to be learned there outside of the practice of law, right? The first lesson mm-hmm. to be learned is, hey, most people, they know one attorney, right? Or maybe they know two attorneys. Right. They know their, they know the, the person who wrote their will. They know the person who helped them close on their house. And if they were divorced, maybe they know the person who helped them with their divorce. Those are the, those are the three attorneys that pretty much everybody knows if they know an attorney at all. In difficult times, and where we're recording this in, in 2022, in the middle of 2022, and we're just coming out of a really difficult time for a lot of people with COVID, in difficult times, things get difficult for lawyers, too. They decide, hey, listen, I've never practiced personal injury law before, but this looks like a case I can settle pretty quickly. So that real estate attorney thought, hey, I'll send a, what's called a demand letter, right? I'll send a demand letter to somebody, and they'll offer me a settlement, and I'll talk the client into taking it, and it'll be fine. The client thinks they went to an attorney. They don't know the difference between a real estate attorney and a personal injury attorney. This illustration is a great illustration. This is like going to a golf pro to have your appendix removed. That's the difference between hiring a real estate attorney for a complex case like this and hiring a real personal injury attorney. So the other lesson I think we got to take away from this, Mike, is that, look, police officers, firefighters, they're busy they sometimes they will take shortcuts, right? So the police officer goes in there and he smells gas and he's sees a dead guy. Okay, it's a suicide. We got to take statements because I have to show uh, that I that I that I tried. They take a statement and they just get a name, a phone number. Hey, what did you see? I didn't see anything. You know, blah blah blah. Okay, I took statements. Right? They're checking off a box. There's yeah, a difference. To close be- the case. Right. There's a difference between doing a job well every single time and just getting through your shift. And in every right. profession, we got people who are just trying to get through their shift. When you go to a personal injury attorney with a personal injury case, you probably looked at that first glance and you said, this is a little suspicious. You know, these, yeah. these state, you probably read the statements, right? And you were like, I don't know. It doesn't look like they asked a lot of questions of these right. people they took the statements from. Right. So now take us through, Mike. Okay. So you, so give us the kind of the next steps in this case. So your, your investigator went out and he basically did the job the police officers should have done, uh, asked right. the right questions, took the real statements. Uh, so is there a case there? So we're still determining that. We're still getting uh, some reports back, and there are some uh, witnesses my uh, my PI still needs to talk to. But I can pick that up on a very similar case of mine that two criminal defense attorneys tried to pick up for a rear-end trucking case 
where a guy was left paralyzed at the scene. All right. So they took this case. They knew the guy uh, from his brother who was a client of theirs. And they saw paralysis, trucking case. This is a no brainer. Right. Well, it turns out the first thing this guy said after the accident to the police officers was, where's my blunt? All right. So right there, that's in the police report. The insurance company sees that and they're going, what's going on here? Right. Um, so they came to us and they said, we, we messed this up. We, we don't know how, what we're doing. So let's go. So the case was already in suit. So what we did was, again, we got our investigators out looking for people. Now, in that case, the police, again, this is a massive uh, road cra- uh, crash in the middle of I-90 just outside of Rockford. Um, there were witnesses upon witnesses in a traffic ex- uh, jam that when this went down and the cops didn't put down a single witness's name, not one. Right. So there's 12 police officers on the scene. Um, first step is we get those cops in and we want to talk to every single one of them. And we want to ask them who they talked to, when they talked to them, what they found. Now, there was no marijuana ever found in the vehicle. So that was a good thing. And there was no marijuana in the client system, which was also a good thing. Uh, he suffered a massive brain injury. So we can assume that's where that came from as well. But what we ended up having to do is during the deposition of one of the police officers, um, we're talking about the whole process, the scene. What are you doing? You know, there are these witnesses here. Um, people talked about witnesses, you know, the other cops talking about people being there. Why don't we have these names down? And the cops like, you know, we take their names down on these little notes. And if we don't think it's important, we throw it out. You know, we get these little notepads that we keep in our pockets. So we looked at the at the at this cop and I go, you, you're the reporting officer. You've got one of those notepads in your pocket. Can you take it out? And this is like almost a year after the crash itself. And he goes, yeah, you can take a look at it. There's not going to be anything in there. So we take the thing out and, you know, defense counsel and I both look at it and very page one, my client's name, date of accident, location, two witnesses with their phone numbers. Wow. So we had never got that before. So I asked for immediate recess. I go out into the hallway. I call my investigator. I said, find this guy and get me a statement. Because at this point, all the defense uh, firm is saying is this guy says he's on pot, says he's high. We got no eyewitnesses because both of the uh, drivers suffered brain injuries. And the, the defendant in this case, my heart goes out to him. He, he, he will never be the same. He was injured so severely. Um, but we, through that, through these police officers not necessarily doing their job thoroughly that day, um, they just wanted to close the file. Uh, we were able to find the eyewitness that came in who said, uh, the truck driver was driving erratically for at least five miles before the crash. Um, he appeared to be texting or on a phone. He couldn't see because he was high, but he kept swerving in our lanes. In fact, the witness drove ahead of him because he didn't want to be close to him, thinking he was going to get hit. And when he got stuck in the traffic jam where my client was, he was terrified knowing that guy was coming up from behind the whole time watching his mirror, just waiting for it to happen. So, um, so from there, you know, the case sort of unfolds as, now that this defense attorney who the whole time said your client was was high, we're going to argue that he broke short or stopped suddenly or changed lanes inappropriately because they could argue anything as long as there's not a witness there to say what actually happened. All of a sudden, they got a position that they can't defend. They got a, a driver who's being reckless, um, and we got him just by putting in the hard work, asking the hard questions. And in that in that case, so let, let's talk about, first of all, how you get somebody like a police officer to cooperate. Right. It, they, the police officers or, you know, hostile, I, I shouldn't say hostile because we don't know if they're going to be hostile police officers or witnesses that would normally be more friendly to the other side or not friendly to a lawyer at all. They're not just going to come in out of the kindness of their heart. How do you get them to come in and answer those questions? There used to be a time where you could call a police officer and he would talk to you. Um, those days are gone. Uh, you now, nowadays what you have to do is you have to subpoena them and bring them in. And the majority of police officers are going to stick to what's in the report and try not to offer anything outside of it. You know, I don't have a recollection of this. Nothing, none of this refreshes my mind because they don't want to be the, the centerpiece. I mean, it, it comes across even with eyewitnesses to, to accidents. The guy I just talked about who we ended up getting the statement from, he hid from our investigator for three days. My guy had to follow him around Minneapolis Finally, the guy breaks down and goes, what do I have to do? He goes, you already wrote the statement for me. I just need you to sign it. He just didn't want to be a part of it anymore. He goes, and I thought that's enough. Um, you know, so people don't necessarily, I mean, they, there's oftentimes they want to help at the scene. But when it actually comes down to giving a deposition or, you know, putting themselves out there and using up their time, they don't want to be a part of it. So it's, it's difficult. You really got to have um, a, a good investigator who can build a rapport with them 
get them to trust them um, and know that they're doing it for good. And ultimately, if you give a statement that's honest and fair, you might not have to go the next step. That might be enough to allow everybody to, to, to resolve the case. So let's talk about that part of it, right? So you're, you're, you, this is your practice. As much as people see, and I'm not talking about you now, I'm talking about people in the, in the personal injury practice area. They see, they see personal injury attorneys advertising on TV. And by and large, it's like the top 1% of firms in the country that actually do television advertising. But the perception of the public is that, oh, attorneys, they make a lot of money. And, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're the ones who, uh, who have all the control. But in reality, you're going up against billion dollar companies because you're not suing the person who may have caused the accident basically you're suing i mean maybe you are but you're suing the the insurance company right and the insurance company has infinite resources to uh to apply to making your life difficult and more importantly making your client's life your client who's already injured making their life difficult talk about you know, insurance is a business and insurance companies don't build big buildings. They don't create wealth for their shareholders based on claims they pay, right? Insurance companies make money based on taking people's money and number one, hoping things never happen. Or number two, when things happen, basically wearing people out and paying as little money as possible. That is the business model of an insurance company. So, Talk about what leverage you have to bring to bear as a personal injury attorney to get the insurance company to do what they are obligated to do as part of their contractual obligation, because that's what an insurance policy is. Right. So to that point, I always tell clients when they when they come in initially, I don't only handle catastrophic cases. I handle all kinds of cases. And the reason for that is this. Everybody who causes an accident who has insurance automatically has an attorney. They've got hundreds of them. And they've got all those resources, as you just set up. They've got an adjuster who's already investigating it. They've got lawyers who are reviewing it. And this person who's in the accident, who's probably never been in one before, doesn't have a law degree. Most of the time, you know, you don't know what their education level is. They need a lawyer too, because you can't go up against that on your own. You you just can't. Um, It's not fair. It's not a balanced field. So what we have to do uh, on my end is you have to outwork them. Um, you're going up against, you know, from the jump that they've got more resources, you know, that they've got more attorneys on the file. They've got more finances than I could ever, you know, put into something. You got to outwork them. You got to uh, develop your theory early in the case. You got to stick to it and you got to develop that so that they can't overcome it. Um, and most importantly, you have to establish yourself as the authority and the most credible person in the room. So when you walk into the courtroom, you know, and the facts are coming out, you want to make sure that they're as exactly as you set them out to be. So the judge, when there's a question, isn't looking at the defense attorney saying what's right. He's looking at you saying, all right, you've been up front. There's no gamesmanship here. Tell us what it is. And then you've established credibility um, and, and you just got to outwork them. Um, you got to show them you're not afraid to, to go up against them um, and, and really just outwork them because accountability is what we're after, you know. Um, I'm not going after, as you said, the individual. I'm not going after the mom and pop whose you know kid got in an accident. We're not going after the kid. Uh, we're not going after someone who you know doesn't have a whole lot of means. Uh, their name would be on the complaint, but the insurance company is the target, um, and the insurance company has all the ability to resolve this in the right way. And uh, as you said, their tactic is deny, delay, defend, um, and underpay. So that's that's what we got to do. You got to outwork them to make sure your client gets everything they're entitled to. What what percentage of the cases that you, that you've had experience with over the years? What percentage of them uh, actually go the distance, and what causes certain cases to go to trial and other cases to settle? Uh, I would say ninety eight percent of cases that I bring in are resolved pre suit. Um, I did a lot more trials earlier on. Uh, there was just the, the climate was more trial driven. Um, there's a lot more avenues now towards mediation and arbitration and pretrial to get things resolved. Um, oftentimes, it depends on the client's wants and the client's needs. Um, uh, I don't try to put myself above the client and say I'm trying this case because this could be my you know my 
what do you call it, those uh, mega verdict or whatever, this is going to buy me a, a summer home or anything like that. It comes down to the client, you know. Uh, what does the client want? What is the client? I've had clients with great cases that would be phenomenal in front of a jury. They come to me and say, I don't want to go through it. I don't want to have to sit in a courtroom and be judged while this guy points the finger at me and says it's my fault. It's not my fault, you know. Uh, they just don't want to have to deal with that. Uh, and, and insurance companies know that there are those situations where they can play the game to get a client to that position. Um, I've had other clients where um, that really wanted to take the case to trial, but I just didn't think they'd come across right to a jury, you know, and that's that's something that goes into the decision as well. Uh, I was at a, a seminar years ago where there were a bunch of attorneys talking about their $10 million verdicts and their $20 million verdicts and this and that. And one of the guys gets up and he looks around the room and he goes, the only guys in this room that have those verdicts are sitting up here at that table. Because if you have got a claim, a good claim, and the insurance company comes to you with good money, think about it. He goes, because these are rare, you know, and you got your client to, to take care of. So you want to put your client in the best position possible. Sometimes cases just have to go to trial. You just know. Um, there's no way it's going to be resolved. Parties are too far apart, either in value or in, as, uh, in liability issues. Um, so you just have to try those. Um, but oftentimes you can you can meet and come to a reasonable resolution that's best for your client, you know, because sometimes the resolution is as much a part of the healing process as the medical care itself. Just taking that weight off their shoulders and putting this behind them so that they can move on with their life. So um, I'm going to I'm going to ask you a question now and that that will reveal kind of a dirty little secret of the personal injury practice. Before I do that, I want to let people know we're talking to Michael Cushing. Uh, he is a personal injury attorney in Illinois. You can reach out to him at 312-726-2323, 312-726-2323. I'm putting his email and his uh, website info down in the show notes so that you can check him out. Uh, give him a call if you have any questions or if you or someone you know or care about has uh, has an issue, a personal injury case, or really you can call you can call Mike with any legal need and he'll get you to the right person. Um, he knows a lot of lawyers. He knows a lot of lawyers in Illinois. I'm sure he'll, he'll be happy to help you out because that's one of the things that personal injury attorneys do. They do get calls for other cases and they send them to people they trust. And that's what I want to talk about now, Mike, when I talked about uh, revealing kind of the dirty little secrets. So until I started working with lawyers, I never knew this. There are some people who will take personal injury attorneys who will take a personal injury case from a client, sign that client up, but they'll never take a case to trial, right? They'll push the case as far as it'll go. And then if the case has to go to trial, well, they got to bring in somebody else to do the trial or they do everything they can. They do all kinds of gymnastics to settle the case before it gets to that point. Here's the reason why I think this is problematic, Mike. The insurance companies know who those people are. So help us understand, Mike, what what questions we need to ask if we're in the situation where we're sitting across the table from somebody like you trying to get someone to help us with our case. How do I know as a regular guy off the street who's got a family member who's been hurt? How do I know if I'm sitting across from somebody who who can go toe to toe with the insurance company or if I'm sitting across from somebody who's going to sign the case up? And, you know, they're a personal injury attorney. They're not a real estate attorney who's moonlighting as a personal injury attorney. How do I know if I'm sitting across a table from somebody who the insurance company is going to respect as a peer? Well, I think you have to look at their track record, first of all. Um, Have they tried cases? You know, what cases have you tried? What kind of cases have you tried? Um, if you're just someone who's just tried simple rear-enders, that's one thing. But if you've tried med mal cases, product liability cases, trucking cases, that's a different story. Those are, those are um, you know, th- those are complicated, complicated cases, and you want someone who is capable of doing that. Um, I-, I have to say, trying cases is extremely fun, but it's hard work, and it's not for everyone. You know, there's a lot of people out there who just want to sit second chair. Uh, I got a friend of mine who who takes in PI cases sort of on the side from his regular job, and he'll never file suit. And he tells the client up front, if I can resolve this thing before uh, filing suit, I'm your guy. But if you want somebody else to go on, you got to go somewhere else. Um, But it's hard work. The client has to, as I said, it's not one size fits all. The client has to vet the attorney just as much as I have to vet the, the, the client. Are you the right attorney? for this client. And you got to be honest with the client up front as well. 
you know, that, that falls on, on you. If it's something that's outside of your wheelhouse or if you get the inclination that this is something that's going to go the distance and you're not ready to put the money in, the time in, and the energy, then you got to say it's not for me. But the client also has to be um, comfortable to ask those questions. You know, I mean, it's, it's a... It's a trust relationship. Um, it's not something that is is a, uh, a, a relationship like in business where you're hiring someone to work for you for years on a contract. This is a one-off. This is their one and only chance, right? And they've never been in it before. They weren't looking for an attorney. They weren't looking to get hurt. They weren't didn't want to be in the situation. And they want someone who's going to hold their hand and get them through it so that they've got the best outcome that they possibly can on the other end. Their life is never going to be exactly the same the money will never compensate them fully for what they've been through. And money is not a substitute for your health or your life. Um, but the client, you have to have a, an open conversation. You have to take the time to build that relationship from the very beginning. And the client has to be comfortable to ask those questions because it's, it's, it, it's going to be a long time. And, and it's, you're putting your hands in this person to, to take care of you. You better make sure they're the right person for you. So Mike, what, what do we what do we ask the attorney so that we can understand like what like the case example that you gave uh, at the at the beginning of our time together today like I what I take away from that is you you know you had the, you had the experience and the insight to go wait a minute I think we need to ask a few more questions here and you're you're still not willing to commit that this is a that this is a worthwhile case because you feel like you don't have enough detail and good for you because you're investing even more time and money if it is a case that you want to move forward with but how does a how does the average person understand like it's you know somebody who's in um you know Minnesota or somebody who's in New York now and they're sitting across the table from a personal injury attorney how do they know that they got the Mike Cushing of that area the person who has the eye for the detail that was missed the first time this went, you know, this, this went over. Like, how do we, like, I could tell right away that you're that kind of guy from the way that you told that story. How do we get the person we're sitting across from to, to open up to us so that we can see, we can get a window into how they think about a case? How would the client do that, you're saying? Yeah, how would the client do that? So, so like, like if, I'm, if I'm sitting across from you and you tell me that story and you're like, and I'm still not sure I'm going to take the case, I'm like, this is my guy because he's going to dig up everything before he decides. And, you know, if he gets three quarters of the way into this and figures he doesn't want the case anymore, he's still going to, you know, persist because he, he went through and found all the details. I don't want the guy that's going to just say, all right, sign here. And then if, if, you know, if the case gets too complicated, he goes, take this offer, right? So how do right. I know that I got like that? How do I know that? I have the person that has the experience plus the talent to to really see the nuances of a case because you know and I know from working with a lot of attorneys over the years that that one little nuance in a case is the difference between a five-figure settlement and a six-figure settlement or a six-figure settlement and a seven-figure settlement, right? That one mm -hmm. little detail that the insurance company is hoping you don't find, the one little fact that you know, that, that just happens to be omitted everywhere, but can be found with digging. How do we know we're sitting across from the person who can find that? I, I think a lot of it goes into how much time is this attorney giving me on the initial intake, right? W what questions are they asking? Um, are they just handing me a questionnaire or a pamphlet saying, fill this out, uh, give me a copy of the police report and I'll take it from here? I mean, that's in some cases that might be fitting, but in most it's not. I mean, does the attorney want to meet with you face to face to get to know you, talk to you? Do you want to meet with the attorney? I mean, with COVID, some of that stuff's a little dip, more difficult now. Uh, people don't always want to come in. But you have to, if the attorney is willing to put in the time initially to get to know you and to get to know the case, then that should give, be a good indicator that that's someone that, you know, is going to be there to help you. Also, someone that encourages you to ask them questions. You know, oftentimes I get clients in, and we'll sit down and we'll talk for an hour and they'll be quiet and they'll be reserved because they don't deal with a lot of attorneys. Um, oftentimes I don't wear a suit around new clients because I don't want to create that impression of like an authority figure versus not. You know, I've got a couch in my office. We'll go sit on a couch and a chair so we don't have a big desk in between us. You know, I want to create a comfortable family room setting so we can have, have an open discourse. And I always look at them and say, you've been really quiet during this meeting you're going to go home, you're going to get in your car, and you're going to have questions. You're going to have all sorts of things that pop in your head. I go, don't wait. Here's my cell phone. Call me. Text me. If you want to come back tomorrow, 
come back tomorrow. But, you know, you want to build that relationship. It starts from the very beginning. Um, you're going to be with this client and the client's going to be with you for a while. I mean, these things don't resolve overnight. Um, you got to sort of feel each other out. Uh, and if the attorney's giving you the time that, that you feel you deserve and that if they're um, treating you with respect and encouraging you to be a part of the process, I think that's that's a good that's a good sign. So let's talk about that. Talk about the length of time. Right. So there's no this is not a, you know, getting getting hit by a car, you know, stepping in front of a moving vehicle is not a get rich quick strategy. There's a lot of problems with that. That not the least of which is that if you do file suit, it's going to take a long time. So give us a, give us a, a, a window into give us a kind of a glimpse into you know, how long a case takes. I mean, you know, if you think it's going to take two years, like double that, like, you know, oh, oh, it always takes longer than you think. Explain to people what the process looks like and why it takes so long and how long it actually takes. Right. So first of all, it's, it's rare that, well, not rare. Uh, It all depends on when the client is recovered for the most part. Uh, Often, you know, sometimes you get the clients that are just going to be in treatment for the rest of your life and you know that. So time doesn't really, that isn't going to be the result. But if you got someone who, you know, has a broken leg, say, and the doctors are optimistic about the prognosis and they have their surgery and this and that, you can't even begin to discuss resolution of the case until the doctors have cleared them and say, this is where you are, right? And even at that point, that's just done with your treatment. Let's give it some time and see how you really feel six months from now after you've put that leg to use, after you're back at work, after you're doing your activities of daily living, walking your dog, playing with your kids. Um, it, it's not so much as long as the process is, which can be a very long time, um, but it's, it's, it has to do with how well you heal. And when you're ready to make that decision, okay, I'm good to get this thing over with. Uh, you can start the litigation at any point in time during that. Um, but really, until you're done um, treating and you feel that you're as good as you're ever going to be, it, to talk about trying to resolve a case is pointless. So is there, I, I mean, I hear about statute of limitations. Is there a uh, is there a time period where you have to do something in order to preserve your rights? So for example, let's take a, and we haven't talked really about, about this at all. Let's take a medical malpractice case. Um, mm-hmm. Let's take a, you know, a, a medical malpractice case with a, with a, a middle-aged person who for whatever reason passes away during a, what's called a routine surgical procedure, right? How long does the family have to, to decide what to do? I mean, they're devastated. Do they have to do something right away? How long do they have to wait? What do they need to do in order to preserve their rights? All right. So my advice to everybody, uh, regardless of malpractice or auto accident or anything, as soon as you think something's wrong and, and you think you might have a case, you get to a lawyer immediately. All right. You talk to a lawyer right away uh, because that way you're not going to ever be at risk of missing something or missing one of these deadlines. But in the event of a malpractice case, you have two years from the date the malpractice occurred or the date that you knew that the malpractice occurred. So as a patient, you don't always know something went wrong. Say it was an operation and a surgical device was left inside you. You find out that a year later, the, the statute starts to run from the date you find out you have you know, mesh or something left in the sponges left inside of you. Uh, but even with those, there is a cap on how long you can wait. Um, so like, I, I believe it's five years on med mal. Once you're past that five-year thing, even if you didn't learn about it until later, the case is missed. So if you think the second you think something is, is amiss, something is wrong, you get to a lawyer and you start talking. Because then they can start ask, asking those questions to the hospital, the doctor, and they'll figure out what's going on. And that way you don't have to worry about missing your chance to do it. It's so, a shame when I get calls from people who waited three years, you know, and you're sitting yeah. there going like, what can I do? So we're we're in a we're in a time and I live I live in an area um, I live in I live in Miami and um, you know I, I would imagine other big cities are just like Miami but I'll speak to experience here in Miami where <clears throat> excuse me you know people who are in the hospital or were taken to the hospital as a result of an accident somebody somebody tips somebody off and there are people who come to visit them in the hospital that try to sign up a case and in in your industry i think they call these people runners right explain to people why they should be suspicious of someone who comes to visit and talks about the legal aspects of a case with a relative or with the injured party while they're undergoing treatment in a hospital so i <laughs> Um, my son asked me one time, you know, what's what? Why can't 
lawyers like that do that. And I, I use the expression, lawyers follow the Dracula rules. We have to be invited in to talk to you. If someone just comes knocking on your door, you don't know who they are, that you haven't had an opportunity to vet them. They're telling you they're there for your interest, but how did? why are you hanging out at the hospital waiting for me? You know, I mean, this is something that disappeared for a while, but is becoming more and more prevalent. I'm getting clients who will get in an accident and get eight phone calls in the first 24 hours, you know, from various law firms. Um, when you're making the decision as to who you want representing you, you want to make sure that it's someone you've vetted, that you trust. And usually you want someone that comes highly recommended from somebody else, right? So someone just knocking on your door saying, I'm here to help you. They're not there to help you. I mean, the the intention is is to make money off you, short sale or whatever, get you signed up and ship you off to somewhere else. It's a, it's a bad business model. Uh, and they take advantage of people who are in those moments of duress to get them to sign contracts uh, when they shouldn't. It's, it's wrong. It makes lawyers look bad. Um, and it, it feeds into that whole ambulance chaser runner thing. It's, it's, it's bad for business. It's bad for all of us. It reflects poorly on us. Uh, if someone comes knocking around, you should, you know, the alarm bell should go off. This isn't right. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick story um, that I that I haven't told on this show before from my own personal experience. Um, again, this is my experience. It's not a, not a reflection on Mike. So I'm a I'm a member of a grievance committee here in uh, in Florida. I serve as a uh, as a civilian volunteer on an attorney grievance committee. So I, this is my second tour on a grievance committee. It's a three year thing um, where we see a lot of stuff. So in my, during my first uh, go around on, on a grievance committee, my wife, unfortunately, was in a car accident and she, she was rear ended on a state uh, state road here in South Florida. She had our kids, our kids in the car and everybody's fine. Uh, the other party was fine. Minor, uh, very minor damage to both vehicles. Um, and she calls me and I said, no matter what happens, get a police report because you don't want somebody filing a claim later and not having a police report. So. Uh, both, both cars pull over, uh, state trooper comes, takes the report, Mike before, and I'm not exaggerating in the least before she even got home, before she got home, I had a phone call from an attorney. Okay. Like an hour, an hour after the incident. Okay. Now again, my opinion, no reflection on Mike, my opinion, there's only one way that happens. <laughs> only one way. It, someone who has access to the police report takes a picture of it on their phone and sends it to somebody who gives it to an attorney. That's the only way that happens. I tell this story to illustrate the nature of the world we live in today, right? So if you're in an accident and somebody calls you and they say they want to help you, my advice to you, and then we'll get Mike's advice, call an attorney you trust and ask them to introduce you to a personal injury attorney. Mike, how do the best cases come to you? Where where do good cases come from? Uh, I love that story you just told, though, that same exact thing happened to my brother uh, about six weeks ago. He was he was calling me that night being like, I've got four calls today. I was in an accident lunch. Like, how is this happening? Uh, within, Mike, I'm not even exaggerating. Within like an hour, it was an hour. Somebody, right. you know, I'm not, I'm not accusing anyone. Someone somewhere along the line took a picture of that police report and texted it to somebody who gave it to an attorney. Yeah, no, it's 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 bad. It reflects poorly on on all of us. Um, yeah, if someone's calling you out of the blue, don't take the phone call. Uh, you wouldn't talk to the, you shouldn't talk to the insurance company when they're calling you to ask you, you know, how you're feeling. Don't do that. And don't talk to just some random attorney. Call around, ask friends, um, talk to several attorneys if that's what you feel comfortable doing, but find the one that's right for you and don't let them dictate who, who you're going to choose. You know, in our, in our case, uh, unfortunately, the person, you know, went after the wrong, went after the wrong client because I took all their information down and gave it to bar counsel and bar counsel ended up pursuing them. And it turns out that they had a history of, of doing this, but, I mean, just the average person who doesn't know any attorneys, they don't know anything about the law. Somebody calls and offers to help them and you were just in a bad accident. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's making them a victim twice. So, Mike, tell us, how uh, how do you get the cases that come to you? How, do, how, how does business come in the door at your law firm? So the way that we get business, um, number one, is through former clients. Uh, you know, do our best job to represent them so that they pass our name along to anybody that they run into. Uh, we get it from attorneys that we have relationships with that don't practice in our field, and even some that do practice personal injury, but they don't specialize in things that we handle. 
Um, and, you know, the biggest compliment is when you get a, a referral from a defense attorney that you went up against in a, in a trial or, or a big case. So um, we are pretty we try to stay relevant on social media to some extent to be visible. Um, we do newsletters. Uh, we're big on uh, the Internet because I think the Internet is taking over a lot as to how people find you. I mean, there's you throw a rock and you can find a personal injury attorney. So there's a lot of things you got to do to stay uh, on top of it. Uh, we've put together some some video uh, work to sort of differentiate us from other from other uh, firms to show that sort of this is how we handle cases. You know, don't tell me you can help me. Show me how. So we give some examples of that. We use Melissa Costello, who I know you know, to do that. Uh, she did a great job with us. Um, but all of our clients are one-offs. You know, it's not like we're creating a relationship where you get a contract for 10 years to work for some company. Uh, so you need to make sure that with every single client you get, you give them the best representation possible so that they can go out and 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 refer you other business um there's lots of those as you talked about before the big billboard companies that put their names out there that draw in cases there's the tv advertisements that run during mori povich during the day that are looking for certain cases and there's also those old school firms here in chicago the big names who have been around for generations that are that are going to get cases so you got to make yourself stand out and you know just because someone's bigger or older doesn't necessarily mean they're better you know Miller Lite isn't necessarily better than a microbrew. It's, it's, it's what you want, you know, and what suits you, what suits your needs. So uh, we do clients and non-attorneys are really the basis of where I get my cases. So um, the last thing I, I want you to talk about really quick, um, and we didn't, I didn't, we didn't do a pre-interview, so I don't know how you feel about this. So I'm just going to ask it and, um, and you can give me your thoughts. I hear people talk about tort reform all the time. And as soon as I hear tort reform, I, I think about, well, somebody, somebody's been reading the propaganda or the, or the lobbying information <laughs> put out there by, by the insurance companies. Explain, explain what, what tort reform is really code for. And hey, I'm kind of leading you here, but what is, what is tort reform all about? And, and why should we be skeptical when people talk about that? Tort reform is designed to allow corporations and insurance companies to make more dangerous products and not have to be responsible for them uh, and to be able to cause accidents and not be responsible for them. Trucking companies don't have to vet their employees as much. Uh, Manufacturers of power tools, for example, could give you things that are defective designed to go cheap on the on the manufacturer and put it out in the public knowing it's going to hurt people. You know, all these companies, it's a, it's a cost analysis. You know, what's the value of the injury versus the value of fixing something or hiring better drivers? And as long as they can, you know, save a buck to uh, to make more money in their pof, prop, uh, and put more money in their pockets, whether it's the corporation or the insurance company, they'll do that. You know, the, the litigation isn't affecting the insurance companies. They've got their names on arenas. They're sponsoring bowl games. They're okay. You know, we can put them on the list of, of companies we're not concerned about. Uh, it's the little guy whose life has been impacted uh, catastrophically in a lot of cases that's going to be stuck with 250 grand, you know, for the amputation of both of his legs. That ain't right. That's It's not right. Um, and the insurance companies and the, and the corporations shouldn't get away with it. Yeah, I mean, I I hear tort reform and I just think to myself, you know, that's not what makes your insurance so expensive. The, the personal injury attorney is not what makes your insurance so expensive. No. It's the insurance company's profitability. That's right. what makes the insurance so expensive. So, right. you know, and candidly, I, I look at it this way. If they were to ever succeed and get what they want and have restrictions put on claims like in, for example, I think the UK, I think Australia have limitations on uh, accident claims that can be made. You know what happens? Well, the insurance industry doesn't do as well because people need less insurance because there's there's nothing out there. So so really, it's uh, it's just a it's it's just another way for them to maximize their profit. And if they go too far, they're only going to end up harming themselves. So if you're out there and you're listening and you're watching and you hear people talk about, well, it's the it's the the attorneys that make the insurance so expensive. No, that's not the case. It's the attorneys that keep the insurance companies accountable. And the insurance companies make money because they're businesses and they're designed to make money. Tort reform is put out there by people, companies who are lobbying to make it more profitable for people to be in the insurance business. Okay, Mike, I'm going to ask you you to do... Go ahead, please. The other thing is people that really don't want tort reform to come about are defense attorneys and defense firms. 
Because if you've got a $2 million policy out there that you can defend, you can run bills on that forever. But if their top exposure is two hundred fifty grand, how much can you bill on that, right? Right. Right. You're trying, I mean, maybe maybe they can take one depot and they're done. <laughs> right. Right. So, they, you know, it's one of those it's one of those, you know, topics they want to talk about to keep people engaged in it. But really, the worst thing in the world would be across the board blanket, you know, uh, limits. So, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. Mike, do this for me. Think about three things we should take away from our time together. I'll give you I'll give you a minute to think about it. I mean, we covered a lot of ground here in the last uh, 45 minutes or so. Think about three things you want folks to remember from our time together. While you're thinking of that, I want to remind you of two specific things. The first thing I want to remind you is that we are brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. You heard me say earlier in the show, or you actually heard a Sandrowski Business Minute earlier in the show. And at the end of that Sandrowski Business Minute, you heard me say that that Sandrowski was a CPA firm with a different perspective. I want you to remember that Sandrowski is there for you if you're looking to do a business valuation or you're looking to save money on your taxes. If you are a privately held company, you're a family of wealth, and you want to make sure you're paying the absolute minimum you can possibly pay in taxes, I need you to give Sandrowski a call. You can reach out to them at 866-717-1607, 866-717-1607. Again, Sandrowski Corporate Advisors, they're a CPA firm with a different perspective. We're also brought to you by My Revenue Roadmap Guide. So if you're a professional and you're listening to the show, and I know a lot of you are, and you want to grow your business and you want to do it based on relationships, based on your ability to help educate people... I have something for you and it's absolutely free. It's my gift to you for listening, for watching the show. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to revenueroadmapguide.com, revenueroadmapguide.com. Enter your contact info there. And when you enter your contact info, you'll get immediate access to download for free my guide to business development. This is the same guide I use with my clients. You can use it in your firm, in your practice today, revenueroadmapguide.com. Enter your contact info, download your free revenue roadmap today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. My guest today is Michael Cushing. He is an attorney in Illinois. He can help you with a medical malpractice case, with a personal injury case, big or small. Give him a call. Hey, that rhymes. That sounds good. 312-726-2323. 312-726-2323. I didn't plan that, but I'm going to use that from now on. All right, Mike. I'm going to use, what are I'm going to use it too. <laughs> big or small. Give him a call. All right, Mike. What are the three things we should take away from our time together today. All right. So first and foremost, if you're ever in an accident of any kind, any nature, call an attorney first immediately before you talk to even your own insurance company. You want to make sure that you're doing what's best for you to put yourself in the best position. Uh, number two, uh, find your own attorney. Do not listen to someone who's calling you, soliciting you. Ask around that. Not uh, Attorneys are not one size fits all. You want to find the person that's going to give you uh, the access, the respect, and the time that you deserve to get your full thing. Uh, and, and finally, uh, it's going to be a long process, so make sure you like your attorney. Uh, make sure that they're open to asking questions, make you a part of the process, um, because you're working together as a team um, to get you both the best uh, result that you possibly can. All right, Mike Cushing, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate your insight. It was fantastic having you. Folks, here's the number to call for Mike, 312 312- 726-2323-312-726-2323. And if you get a chance, go to go to Mike's website. I want you to check out the work they've done there. It looks really great. You can go there and vet him. You can read some of the stuff that he's worked on in the past. You can read about him and the other attorneys in his firm. 312-726-2323. All righty, folks, that'll do it for this episode of the Inside BS Show. My name is Dave Lorenzo. I'm here every day with a brand new interview for you. Until tomorrow, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.